Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll continue in our study of what has been affectionately termed the believer's armor, the last paragraph in Ephesians that Paul wraps our concluding thoughts in this great epistle about salvation and how we can defend ourselves against the devil's attacks. Let me read that paragraph for us just to uh, put it fresh in our minds. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and, having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth or the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit with this in view. Be on alert, on the alert, and with all perseverance, all petition for the saints." Helmets are worn in activities where there's a possibility of a blow to the head resulting in injury. You see football players wearing football helmets. Can you imagine watching an NFL game with guys playing with no helmet? Baseball players wear helmets when they're in the batter's box and a guy's throwing a projectile 100 miles an hour at them. Hockey players have helmets for the collisions they have in hockey, and let's, let's just call it what it is, and also to help them in their fights. Construction sites require hard hats. Riding a motorcycle should require a helmet. Racing a car requires a racing helmet. Likewise, riding a bike should probably require a helmet. Skateboarding definitely requiring a helmet. And yes, Military engagement. Soldiers entering battle wear tactical helmets. I saw a documentary recently on the advance of helmets from a simple piece of metal to Kevlar and all that it is and the lightweightness and the comfort of these helmets is amazing. Why? Why do all these people in all these activities wear helmets? Because heads, our heads, are vulnerable to injury. The Romans clearly understood this. They didn't have the medical advances that we have now, but they understood, just as you and I would, that they watched people take, especially in the battlefield, take a blow to the head and it could be fatal. They understood by their training that to administer a blow to the head could be fatal. They also, no doubt, had friends and maybe even family who had suffered a blow to the head and had altered their personality or altered their life. 
Concussions were as real then as they are here. The Romans understood the need, especially in battle, for a soldier to wear a helmet. We've been studying Paul's final paragraph in his letter to the church at Ephesus. After many, many studies, we've come to this last paragraph. And in this section, Paul addresses the believer's need for adequate spiritual defenses and protection against the devil, against the demonic henchmen that serve his purposes. They are ever seeking to destroy the life and the faith of those who claim to know Christ. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 5 eight: be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, that's the key designation, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion. Listen to this, seeking someone to devour. The devil is roaming around. I don't wanna freak anybody out, but he's here today. Probably not in person because he could only be at one place at one time. But when we say the devil, we mean the devil and his henchmen. There are demons in this room right now. They're watching you. They're observing you. They are experts on you. They know the temptations that you are susceptible to, and they know the ones that don't work so well. In verse 6 of chapter, excuse me, verse 11 of Ephesians 6, Paul informs the Ephesians and us that the Christian is to apply Christian virtues, Christian disciplines that function as armor to help us stand against the schemes of the devil. In verses 11 and 12, we meet the enemy of our souls, demons, and the devil himself. These enemies are not manifest in the physical world. You don't see them or taste them or touch them or feel them. You, they're quite invisible. Paul says they are not of flesh and blood. But I'm convinced that much of the weaknesses that we see in Christians in our generation, in the church in general, is rooted in our failure to properly identify, understand, and remedy the attacks we are under from the devil and his demons. Quick review, Paul affirms that Christians are indeed in a battle with Satan, with his demonic forces, and according to verse 12, that takes place in the heavenly places, as we said. It's not against flesh and blood. These creatures, and they are creatures, they're not the bad God, they are creatures and only creatures, angels, as we understand from the book of Revelation, are powerful, they're vicious, they're deceptive and smart, they're creative, and they have expertise. They don't fight fair. They desire to cripple your faith. They want to stunt your spiritual growth. They want to make you doubt God and doubt his word, ultimately trying to destroy your faith. So as Paul considers this cosmic warfare, he looks at a Roman soldier. He's under house arrest, and there was no doubt be a Roman soldier there in the room or just outside the room watching over him who was in full battle array. He's probably changed shifts morning and afternoon and night. And he keeps looking at these soldiers who are guarding him. And under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, that's a perfect illustration of what I want to teach about the believer's need to have defenses in his battle against the devil. It's a vivid picture of the protection and armaments a Christian is to have in our battle against the devil. 
against forces. Now, this is what's remarkable to me. It's incredible, actually. When people typically think about battling the devil or fighting the devil, they, they can easily drift into a charismatic error of talking to the devil and talking to demons and casting them out and binding them and sending them here, there, and there. And Here's what Paul says. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins, listen to these attributes, with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. What I find remarkable about this, this list is that it's not remarkable. It's normal Christian living. What he's saying is it's not about knowing every scheme of the devil. It's about being faithful in your disciplines and your pursuit of God and applying the disciplines that you know of truth, living righteously, understanding the gospel of peace with others and with God, having faith where we believe the right things and disbelieve the wrong things. <laughs> Our defense against the devil, are you ready for this? is regular, normalized Christian living. Which tells us, very interestingly, if we have lapses and gaps in our normal approach to our Christian lives, in our pursuit of Christ, we are making ourselves vulnerable to satanic attack. Now he comes to the illustration. He's looked at the soldier's shoes, the soldier's belt, the soldier's breastplate. And now he looks at his head, looks at his noggin, fifth piece of armor, and take the helmet of salvation. Let's talk about helmets for a minute in the Roman Empire. The soldiers wore most of the helmets worn by Roman soldiers were made of thick leather covered with metal plates. But if you're rich, you would have one molded out of one piece of beaten metal. And by Paul's time, they usually had, as we'll see just in a moment with Dr. Horner's insights, flaps that came down almost like metal sideburns that extended down to the jawbone. In fact, our friend Dr. Horner helps us here when he says this. It generally made, was made of bronze, the head, the headpiece, the helmet, fitted over an iron skull cap with lined leather or cloth. During Claudius's reign, A.D. 37 to 41, the helmet was revised so that it covered the back of the neck, fitting slightly over the shoulder, a brow ridge fitted above the face to protect the nose and eyes, and a hinged cheek piece was fastened to the chin band to protect the face, end quote. Interesting. Great helmet, cool helmet. What's it mean? What does it illustrate? Well, let's do a little investigation here. Head, excuse me, helmets protect, drum roll, what? The head. You're really good. Helmets protect the head. And the head is the locus of thinking. Any significant blow to the head could be fatal, and in the heat of battle, a head injury could portend 
temporary or permanent damage to the soldier's thinking could could, uh, pretend brain damage if it was a strong enough blow. This tells us that the believer's mind is under constant attack by the devil. And what Paul is saying is the helmet of salvation means that understanding properly the doctrine of salvation is a protection against satanic attacks, which tells us that Satan is constantly attacking our understanding of salvation. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, but I'm afraid for you, to the Corinthians, I'm afraid for you, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your, what, minds would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Satan and the demonic realm work night and day to tempt you to think wrongly, to think unbiblically, to think worldly. The devil wants to keep you primarily ignorant of biblical truth. But if he can't keep you ignorant, he will try to confuse and misinform you about the spiritual truth that you do know. So he wants you to be ignorant of spiritual realities, ignorant of what the Bible teaches. But if he can't keep you ignorant, once you know something, he's going to try to confuse that. Try to help you you think differently and wrongly about that. As we look into this text, we're reminded that Paul probably has in mind God as our example. Because in Isaiah 59, we hear that God himself wears the helmet of salvation. He himself put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. A great example and for us and to us. So what's going on with this illustration in Ephesians 6 of a believer wearing a helmet, wearing a helmet of salvation? So can we just talk for a minute? Can, can, can we just have a, a bit of a pastoral moment? Do you ever find yourself seriously lacking assurance of your salvation? Wondering if you're truly saved? Oh, it could be laying in your bed at night when your mind is racing and your conscience is accusing. It could be driving your car. It could be having a conversation. It could be watching someone else and you think, how can I be saved and think that? How can I be saved and say that? How can I be saved and do that or watch that? You ever have difficulty finding the power and the motivation to fight sin? Do you find yourself confessing the same sins time and again? Do you find yourself coming to the Lord's table and saying, I confessed this just last month? You ever experience feeling like you're not a child of God? You just don't feel like you're saved. You don't feel spiritually alive. You don't feel feel spiritual impulses. You don't feel the conviction that you want to. How about this? You ever thought, (laughs) how does everyone else I know who's a Christian have this figured out except me? How are they doing so well I'm not? Why am I this group? And everyone seems to have it together, but I don't. How are they solid? And I, I struggle with doubt 
I struggle with despair. You ever had a fleeting thought of, is this really true? And if so, is it really worth all of my effort and sacrifice? Or have you ever found yourself searching for the key, the magic potion? Oh, maybe there's a book I can read that will fix everything and set my life in order. Maybe there's a new conference I can attend or a new blog that I can be turned on to. Or or there's a website. Or even worse, there's this TikTok influencer who can really fix my spiritual life. Are you always looking for a game changer? Well, (laughs) the helmet of salvation is to be a defense against these kinds of destructive and discouraging thoughts. I believe strongly that Satan's most powerful, most useful, Satan's most effective attack on a believer is getting you to think wrongly about the gift of God's salvation. That's the most eternal thought anyone can entertain. It's the most eternal consequence that anyone can can entertain. And if he can get you thinking wrongly about salvation, that could have serious effects on your spiritual health. Jerry Bridges provides this stunning insight. He says, the gospel is not only the most important message in all history, it is the only essential message in all history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it or experiencing the joy of living by it, end quote. Again, I'm a bit surprised and deeply encouraged that every piece of this believer's armor that we're looking at is just some nuance of basic Christian living, basic Christian thinking. Nothing special and nothing unique here. Believing biblical truth, living righteously, standing strong in peace, resisting the devil, resting in what we believe by faith, and now understanding the gift of salvation next time, wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's how we become victorious over Satan and the demonic attacks on your soul, on your spiritual health. So let's look a little closer at this next piece, this fifth piece, the helmet of salvation. And as we do so, I want to be a little bit uh, canonical on this. In other words, we're going to look beyond just this verse, use this as a springboard into other places that especially Paul and James have talked about the defense of thinking rightly about our salvation and what that needs to be. Three defenses provided by the helmet of salvation. There are many more, but there are certainly no less than these three. Three defenses provided by the helmet of salvation. This is another way of saying we know how Satan will attack our understanding of salvation because the word of God has given us defenses against those attacks. The first one is pretty obvious. You probably saw it coming. Protection against legalism. Legalism. J.C. Ryle wrote this. Since Satan cannot destroy the gospel, he has too often neutralized its usefulness by addition, subtraction, or substitution, end quote. Addition, that's legalism. 
We are going to add, add works to our faith. One of the most damaging, one of the most damning errors in which Satan confuses, with which Satan confuses believers is the lie and the error of legalism. Now, we got to talk about this for a second because we use the word legalism so wrongly. You know, someone uh, has a certain perspective about uh, alcohol, a certain perspective about caffeinated drinks, a certain perspective about skirt length or hair length, and we say, that's legalistic. And I understand the sentiment that you're, you're trying to say that you're trying to be holier than someone else, but that's typically an accusation against a person's sanctification and their, their views of how holiness works. Typically, when someone says that's legalistic, they don't think in biblical terms, which is they think doing something will save them in addition to Christ's work. That's legalism. That's the, the, uh, the error that Paul spent so much of his epistles fighting. At the heart of legalism is the inescapable feeling of condemnation. Can I be bluntly honest with you? I have felt the pull and the power of legalism in my own life. This leads, this threat rather, leads to an endless cycle of effort and a performance cycle to evaluate our own salvation through the lens of our own performance. Feeling that greater effort and greater works will impress God and he, it will assure our salvation. This is the monster we've talked about so many times of enoughism. Enough is, if I do enough, it'll be better. Oh, I need to pray enough and then God will accept me. I need to give enough and God will, will accept me. I need to obey more or you fill in the blank. You keep saying, if I do enough of this, enough of that, then God will save me because you never think that what you do is enough. And you're right. It's never enough. Why? Because God expects perfection. And if you're asking your heart, can I add enough? You're already admitting that you're not perfect. Only the perfection and the finished work of the merit of Jesus Christ can be accredited to our account to be saved and enough in God's mind. We will never be, but his son was. So the heart of legalism is believing that you can earn God's approval and achieve God's forgiveness by your own efforts and your own performance. Have you ever felt that way? I think the truth is most of us probably have in seasons or in moments. Sarah is nothing new. It was called Judaism in the first century. And Paul and the apostles spent a massive amount of scripture and even time correcting this error. You see a glimpse of it and of this fight in Acts chapter 15 at the first council of the church, the Jerusalem council, where the apostles and the leaders met to discuss whether or not a Christian needed to add obedience to the Mosaic law to their faith. Maybe if they, if they were circumcised, maybe if they kept the, the dietary laws, then they could add Christ to that or that to Christ and then you're truly a completed Jew and you can be saved and the apostles talked about this and their answer was a resounding what no no there is nothing you can add to the finished work of Christ 
When Paul wrote the book of Romans, the most theologically dense book in the whole Bible, he used almost five chapters to explain that salvation, remember, is by grace alone, it's all the, all the gift of God, through what alone? Faith alone, believing alone. It is, sh- it is shocking to read the first five chapters of Romans and to say, wait a minute, Jesus did all this for me instead of me, and all I have to do to go to heaven is to believe that he did this for me? Romans 3, 28, Paul says, we maintain that a man is justified, he's saved by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4, 1, what shall we say then? What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For Abraham was justified by works. He, if, he, if he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And so he, he uses the great example of Abraham. That's going to be important to remember in just a minute. He says, listen, the father of our faith was Abraham. God made him just and righteous in his sight. He credited to him righteousness based on what? His effort, his works, his obedience? No, no, no. Romans 4.22, salvation was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Credited to him. Now, it was not for his sake it was written that it was credited to him, but for our sakes, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Abraham believed, and God credited him righteous because of his belief. So when you strap, strip away rather the, the guilt and the glitter of legalism, you tear that away, you find that it's a philosophy of living that renders the cross of Christ impotent, insufficient, and unnecessary. One of the ways that Satan confuses a believer is by making us confuse sanctification, which is our pursuit of holiness, which is good works that we, we accomplish because of God's grace in obedience, we think that is how you are justified, how you're saved. We smuggle, as Jerry Bridges says, we smuggle sanctification into our justification. We'll come back to that. Here's a question. Do you, do you recognize how legalistic your heart can be? Boy, I do. How we can base our feeling about salvation on our efforts? Well, that's one error that the helmet of salvation guards us against is legalism. No, you you can't do enough. Think rightly about that. It's the work of Christ. But there's the opposite error that he also whispers into our minds, and that is not only the sin of legalism and protection against legalism, protection against antinomianism. That's a big word, but it's one you should know. Anti, not, Nomos, the Greek word for law, no law, no works. It's the idea of easy believism. In other words, if I believe Christ, if I believe the gospel, if, I, if I've received Jesus as, as my Savior, then he doesn't have to be my Lord and I can live and act any way I want. You can also call this easy believism or libertinism, some people call it. It's a unique and opposite error that the helmet of salvation guards us against from legalism. 
The theological designation is the big word antinomianism. It's just living like you want to and thinking you can have Christ and sin and that's okay. It's the idea that we can live any way we want because God has given us forgiveness. It looks to the wonder of salvation by grace alone and presumes on that grace in order to live in it and to live with it, sin. And maintain that God is a forgiving God. He's fine with this. Remember after five chapters of explaining that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Paul heads off this error that we're talking about, antinomianism, in Romans 6, when he says this, and you can hear the conclusion. He has been so strong, and Martin Lloyd-Jones is so good to say, if you haven't preached the strength of God's grace for five chapters, the first five chapters of Romans, and people would not conclude what they concluded in chapter six, you haven't preached grace strong enough. What's the conclusion? God is so gracious. He is so forgiving. There is no sin that goes beyond the reach of his grace that you could be tempted to say, wow, grace that is greater than all my sin, grace that covers it all. If grace covers my sin and my sin is covered by grace, then the more I would sin, the more grace I would encourage and receive and experience. So he actually talks about that in Romans 6. After five chapters of talking about salvation by grace alone through faith alone, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? But the most practical, piercing, if I can say it, Correction of the error of antinomianism, of easy believism, comes from the pen of the Lord's half-brother James in the second chapter of his epistle, James. Now, I want you to think about this. Paul and James are both fighting errors of salvation for which the helmet of salvation should give us protection. Paul is standing facing this way, fighting the legalists. James is sitting this way fighting the antinomianists. And they both use Abraham as their example. Let me just read that for you. James chapter 2, verse 14. It's pretty piercing. You know this passage well if you've been around the church for very long. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Gives an example. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In other words, if you say I care about somebody, but you don't care for them, guess what? You don't care for them. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But some of them may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe in God, that God is one. You do well, the demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father? Now Paul just said Abraham was justified by faith, not works, right? Right? 
Listen to James. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? And some of our liberal opponents would say, see, there's a contradiction in the Bible. No, no, you got to keep reading. You see, that faith was working in his works. As a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled saying, and Abraham believed God, there's the faith, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So James affirms Paul's statement verbatim. You say, what do you mean, James? He says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, people will say, well, I thought we believe in the doctrine of, of uh, faith alone. Well, you got to hear what he's saying. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. There it is. This is the simple reality that true faith works. True faith works. Faith without works, James says, is dead. Now, you got to put the cart and the horse, the caboose and the engine in the right position here. We have faith, and that causes works. Justification motivates and moves us with the power of God for sanctification, for becoming holy. But we don't attempt to become holy and have works, and then we get saved. James is actually speaking of a strange reality that we could call an unsaved believer. Unsaved believer. It's someone who believes the truth about the gospel. Likes the Christmas story and Easter story, can affirm that those are true, I believe them, but it had no impact on their life. someone who's described as a person who believes the right things about salvation but maintains that he or she can continue in sin and yet still be a child of God. You say, well, that's, that's James and that's Paul. How about Jesus? Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. What? There are people who claim to be a Christian who claim to have Jesus as Lord and they won't go to heaven? Who will? But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, in your name cast out many demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, here's the phrase, you who practice, who live in lawlessness, in sin. So the sin of legalism and the sin of antinomianism are, are back-to-back fighting different errors. And here's the deal. I think if you're honest with yourself, these are not things that you struggle with all your life in isolation. I have wrestled with both of these extremes. I understand how they can be errors and get you to think wrongly about salvation. These are wrong ways of thinking about salvation with which Satan tempts us because if we think wrongly about salvation, we'll think wrongly about God and wrongly about eternity. Well, the helmet of salvation, thinking rightly about salvation, guards us from this. We understand the doctrine of salvation so that when errors start to whisper in our ear from the enemy, we know the truth. Now let's be really practical and personal. 
The first defense against the helmet of salvation, protection against legalism. Secondly, protection against antinomianism. Third, the helmet of salvation protects us against doubt. Against doubt. Again, the fact that Paul describes this piece of armor as the helmet is related to salvation, that's related to salvation, means that Satan's headshots are at our thinking. He wants us to think wrongly, ineptly. He wants us to think wrongly about what salvation is, what it isn't, our security, our assurance in Christ. He even wants us to think singular and exclusively. It protects us against pluralism. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, verse 6. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father except through me. It's rare to find a believer who has not had significant and sometimes persistent debilitating struggles with doubt about your salvation. As we've studied many times, I think it's important to break this down into there are three basic parts of salvation. Facts to believe, theology to understand, repentance, sanctification, to pursue. So when you doubt, I think it's important to stop and say, which which part am I doubting? Am I having a historical crisis where I'm doubting that Jesus really existed, that he really lived in the land in which he lived and did what he did? Am I, am I doubting the veracity of the biblical account of the life of Christ and his resurrection, his death and resurrection? Or theology, am I doubting the theology? Do I really have trouble believing that one man can save a multitude by his death? Or am I having trouble repenting. That's the antinomianism. Am I just saying, I want Jesus, but I also want to keep this sin? Almost all doubt is making the choice in your thinking, in your mind, in your heart, in your emotions to believe your feelings over God's word. And the helmet of salvation is strapped on tightly so that our correct thinking about God's saving work in salvation can defend against doubt, can defend against discouragement, can defend against despair, and even can defend against our departure from the truth itself. I think that's why the next piece of armor is God's word. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Terry Johnson writes, hope is the helmet of our salvation, guarding us from despair, cynicism, unbelief, as the fulfillment of the promise delays, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 talks about. So it's holding and waiting. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things we can't see. It's knowing, it's coming, and believing that God's salvation is true, even if we don't see it, and especially if we don't feel it. Are you wearing the helmet of salvation? Is your thinking about salvation accurate and precise? 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. One of the ways he does that is by thinking rightly about salvation. Make no mistake, you are under attack. You're going to be under attack 
until you die. You are attack in, uh, under attack in this room. You'll be under attack when you get home. You'll be under attack when you go to sleep and Satan will be sitting on your chest in the morning trying to tempt you when you wake up. It's not an overstatement to say that all the powers of hell are poised against you to attack you and the question is whether or not we have donned the armor to face such attacks with the evil one. Satan is a schemer. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He sucker punches. He's relentless. He is ruthless. And remember, he knows you personally. He knows you specifically. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strength and tries to prevent you from leveraging those against him. He wants you to doubt God's word disbelieve God's character. He tempts you to think that what you find on a Google search can compete with what he said in the Bible. He uses your feelings and your doubts to make you think wrongly as he disguises himself as an angel of light. Are you wearing the helmet of salvation? You can only wear it if you're converted if you're a Christian, if you're saved. This just reminds me that it's a, the Bible always invites anyone who doesn't know Christ as Savior. Today is the day of salvation. You can be converted and saved. You can have protection from the devil. You can have hope for eternity. You can lose the fear of death by giving your life to the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified and died for you and rose from the dead, which takes away our greatest enemy in the threat of death, offers us resurrection hope with himself. If you want to talk about that, in a few minutes in our prayer room, one of our elders will be there and would love to invite you and explain to you how you can enjoy the gift of salvation today and put on the helmet of salvation. For those of us who are believers, do you know, do you think rightly about salvation? Do you apply it correctly? Many years ago, I was in Siberia, in Russia, on a very cold afternoon, teaching a group of Russian pastors on pastoral ministry. It was 32 below zero outside and about 150 degrees inside with that, um, that radiator heater that was in the corner. There was a guy there who was sick, he was runny nose. Um, a friend of mine and I, Todd, were there. He, uh, no, no, there's no, no drug stores like we understand where you can just go get some relief. So we gave him a capsule. And moms and doctors, you can help me here. It's, it's one of those time capsules. It's not solid. It's, it has little bitty beads inside of it. Is that a capsule? Is that, is that the right word? You're looking at me strangely. Okay, it's the right words, capsule. Of Tylenol, just you know, to help. Hey, brother, this is going to help you feel a little bit better. He takes the capsule, and he unscrews it, and he puts it by both nostrils and goes, <laughs> Now, Harlan, did, would that have helped at all? I don't know. I don't know if it would have helped at all, but it was, what was clear is he had the right remedy <laughs> but he didn't know what to do with it. Do you have the helmet of salvation? Do you understand the grace 
of what soteriology means, how to understand salvation, that it becomes a wonderful defense against legalism, against antinomianism, and against doubt and despair. Are you an expert on salvation? Because the enemy of your soul does not want you to be. Let's confound him by being experts in salvation, wearing the helmet of salvation to protect our minds from his attacks. Father, we all know what it's like to drift into legalism. We all know what it's like to live in antinomianism. Every one of us have felt doubt, despair, discouragement. Make today a new beginning, this first day of the year that we can strap tightly the helmet of salvation under our chin. Think correctly about grace and works. Think rightly about justification and sanctification. To not conflate the two, but to understand their distinctives and their difference. Oh, Father, what a great and glorious day to bring a sinner home to Jesus, to know him as Lord and Savior and a day of salvation. If there, Father, if there's someone here, please convict their hearts, pull them to the prayer room, have them talk to someone around them who can show them the solution for their souls. Help us to begin this new year wearing the armor of your provision for our protection and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.